Welcome to the Dream Mason Podcast. I'm your host, Alex Terranova. A Dream Mason is a person who's brave enough to declare they have a dream and committed enough to do the work to build it. I know we all have a Dream Mason inside of us, and my dream for this podcast is to support us by giving us a glimpse inside the hearts and minds of leaders, creators, and innovators to help us unleash our inner Dream Mason. Because your dreams don't build themselves. What's up? Welcome back to the Dream Mason podcast. One of the things I love most about doing this podcast is I get to look in my life at people that I know who have inspiring lives. I also get to look out into the world at people I don't know who have inspiring lives and get to know them. But it's really an honor when I get to bring somebody on the podcast who, I've, who I know and who I've known for a long time. My guest today is someone who I actually grew up with. We met in high school, we became good friends, and we have now been friends for, I guess it's probably about 20 years-ish. And I've seen the varying degrees and ups and downs in his life. He has also seen those in mine. And it's really an honor to bring him on here today. And the reason I wanted to bring him on is because I'm blown away and inspired by him. My guest today is a good friend and someone I look up to and admire and am inspired by, Lee Kramer. Lee is president of Aftershock Comics, a startup comic book company that is having some great success in its early years. But that's not why I wanted to have Lee on. What I wanted to have Lee on, because Lee started out in the film industry, and while he could have stayed there and had phenomenal success, a health situation really got him to look at his life and evaluate his life differently. And instead of just pursuing the thing that may have made him a lot of money or where he may have just automatically had success because of the work he had put in, Lee chose a different path. And he went back to his childhood passion, which was comic books, and built a life and a business around a passion and a dream. And it's so amazing and so cool to be able to share this with you guys today. And it's just inspiring to have somebody go back to the thing that they loved when they were young and turn it into the business that they would want as an adult. And to see them have success with it is just mind-blowing. So I'm excited, fortunate, grateful to have my friend, Lee Kramer, who, by the way, does not do social media, does not do interviews on the Dream Mason podcast to let you hear and learn about the film and television industry, have an insight into the comic book world, and really give you a glimpse in what it's like to be faced with your mortality when you get a health scare and having to live your life in the present moment every day moving forward. So let's get to it and welcome Lee Kramer to the Dream Mason podcast. Hey, Lee, what's up? It's awesome to get you on the podcast. Well, it's a pleasure, Alex. Thank you for inviting me. You're welcome. You know, you are one of a few really close friends so far that I've had on here. And, you know, we we obviously go, you and I know this, listeners don't know this, but you and I go back to high school. We have tons of mutual friends that even go back further than that. And I, I mean, I'm the thing I remember about our friendship starting was the nights that I slept on the couch at your parents' house when we were like, what, seniors in high school? Well, I think it would go as far as through college. Oh, yeah, no, for, for sure. 
And yeah. you have to be a good friend as I don't do any social media or many interviews at all. So there you go. Oh, well, thanks. Yeah. <laughs> well, thanks, man. You know, and, and I introduced you and, but one of the things that I want to say that I just really want to get across is, you know, yes, you are the president and co-founder of this awesome, innovative and developing comic book company. But what I wanted to really have you on here for is because, you know, I've always known you to be someone who was smart, talented, loyal, a good friend and had all these abilities. But what the things that I've learned about you in the, in the most recent years, I would say the last five or six, is how resilient you are, how strong you are, the courage, the bravery, those things that evolved through some of the things that have happened more recently in your life really stood out as, I want to say, powerful pieces of who you are as a human being. And those are the things that had me be impressed and inspired by you. Uh, that's, I think, the nicest intro I've ever gotten. Thank you, Alex. You're welcome, man. So you, I want, I want people to get to know you besides your titles. Who are you? Like if you, you know, if we met at a party and you weren't allowed to say who you are based on a title, what would you tell me? I'm a typical guy, I guess, from uh, Los Angeles or more specifically Santa Monica. I like the outdoors. I like pretty things. I like film and television, comics, uh, going out to dinners, having some drinks, and enjoying other people's, uh, you know, other people around and having good conversations and also enjoying my alone time. I don't know. That's about who I am. Man, you left out the, you left out the Clippers, really? Like I know you to be the one of uh, the yes, yes, yes. <laughs> I'm a a huge Clipper fan, and I will admit something. Uh, had Clipper season tickets since like '87, '88, and I will also admit we only started going because it was a way to watch the other great teams. Because the Lakers were for special occasions, but a Clipper fan <laughs> through and through, and now finally they're better than the Lakers. And I have, you've, I've been fortunate enough to go to some cool games with you. I've also been, you know, you said you're like a movie and film lover. I, there's probably a lot of movies that I've seen because of you that I never would have seen. That you were like, we need to watch this random movie that I would have never known about. And it is, you, you've always introduced me to entertainment and things that were not like the pop culture things. Things that were more unique or different. And even, you know, what's really interesting, which it's, it's like very prophetic, what is it? Prophetic? Is that the word? What's the? Yeah. Prophetic. Yes. Yeah. Is I remember when you and your dad introduced me to the movie, The Secret. Like what? How many, (laughs) how many years ago was that? I would assume we were in college. So probably the early 2000s. Yeah, and that's crazy. So at least at least 12, 15 years ago. Yeah, and who would have thought, I mean, I would be doing what I'm doing now. Um, it's funny, I just, I just realized that. So, you know, you let's talk about like you, you know, I said what you do now, and I want to get to how you got there. Let's talk about before. You know, you used to be in movies and TV, but what were your dreams when you were like growing up? Yeah, no, no. Um, I knew from a very early age, I always wanted to be involved in the entertainment business. I specifically wanted to do films. Films were were my passion, and they're kind of seen as like, they were seen till recently as the more high-class medium in the entertainment field, more so than TV. That's changed dramatically as, to be honest, in terms of storytelling, 
when you're developing characters in a world, you have much more time in a TV season than you do in a two to maybe three hour movie. But they're both great mediums. And I always wanted to be in film. I remember one of my first birthday presents was a VHS of the first Star Wars. Uh, and I think that must have been 83 or 84. <laughs> uh-huh. And I just getting to the point, I always, uh, I always wanted to be in the film business simply because I loved watching films. It's not, it wasn't very complicated. for me. Nice. And you actually, and you did that. I mean, from as long as, as we've known each other, I mean, right at, in college, you were, you had internships, right? And in, in the film business or in the TV. Yeah. Yeah. No, no, no. I've uh, actually never had a non film or television job. And even my current job, which Alex said is running a company, a comic company called Aftershock Comics. Uh, I, I continue to do that. I do. I come from the story side and I can physically produce film or television, but in the comic side currently, I do, I do all the development. I, I help pick each book. I develop each book for the comic medium, and then I go sell and develop for film and television. But yes, I've never had a non-entertainment job. What's like one of the roughest experiences you had at the bottom when you were working your way up? Yeah, uh, in the entertainment business, for everybody, you know, what happened to everybody is there's you deal with crazy people. First of all, it's a business that's that though people forget it, it is started upon art or what people think is art. Everything's subjective in terms of your taste. I came, not only did I know early on that I love film and television, just watching it. I came from a family where my father was on a different side. He was on the creative side of film and television. He was a distributor first for films and then later became a distributor for reality television. So I had some relationships with film and television, but though you have relationships, uh, you still have to start at the bottom. And so all through college, I worked both at a talent agency called Endeavor, which is now William Morris Endeavor, and at Sony. And I worked two jobs and got paid nothing. So the big leg up besides that, because of who my father was, I was able to get those internships. I had somewhere to live, where if anybody else was doing that, in college who wasn't from Los Angeles. Uh, They'd be getting unpaid internships and being abused and having to pay rent somewhere. So, but by doing that, and that means getting coffee, uh, making, literally bringing in lunch, then reading and doing notes that you're not sure if anybody pays attention. (laughs) From there, after college, I was able to secure a job. And this job was at Endeavor Talent Agency, which I said has now become William Morris Endeavor. And I made a whopping $18,500 a year. I worked every day, um, I would say a minimum of 14 to 18 hours a day. And unless you were on a partner's desk, you couldn't ask for overtime, even though that's illegal. And the reason they get away with it is everybody wants to be in their entertainment business. And I was always told growing up, it's good to start your entertainment career either at a management company or a talent agency because you get an overview. Because I wanted to be on the story side, meaning the writing side of the world, the creative side. And I didn't want to be a used car salesman, which time to time, some agents and managers can see them, but the really good ones actually care about the art and where their clients' careers are going. So, <laughs> so 
so you start at the bottom no matter what. Um, I worked for two years out of college at that agency, and I lived with my parents for the first, actually almost three years I worked at the agency. And um, for the first two and a half years, I lived with my parents. Like I said, I made a whopping 18500 and I think 21000 Mm-hmm. the second year. And so, and typically, uh, you know, my other friends who were also doing the same job as me, but work from LA, they live with four or five different people in one, maybe two bedroom apartments in downtown LA or Hollywood. So, you know, you do everything from walking clients, dogs, to being on desk, to doing notes for serious, you know, uh, actors, actresses, writers, directors, so forth. After having various desks, at the agency and not, I was asked to go into an agent program, which is like groomed to be an agent, but I didn't want to do that. I wanted to be a producer, a film producer. In fact, I became the head story analyst at Endeavor, which meant I read all the scripts that uh, studios at that time had bought and were looking to make. So they either were looking for director clients or they be, which was an ODA open directing assignment or an OWA open writing assignment, meaning they either bought a script that needed to be rewritten, but needed a high end writer to write. And so I would read these. So these, these scripts had been bought already. They weren't like random scripts. They had been bought by the studios for one reason or another. And they either needed to attach a director client or they needed, they wanted to put on a writing client of theirs to rewrite and get paid. Um, so I would either give it, I would give advice to writers if I thought there was a real story here, though there's a lot of work to rewrite it, but this could be a great move. Or I would give advice to a director of this is what you can have if you're, if what you've done before you can place into this film. So it was kind of like I was helping more and the agents would take my notes and use them to sell these clients on getting these jobs. Obviously, most of the time, both you hear this more about actors and actresses. It's very hard to make it. It's a lot of time in the right place and knowing the right people. Same with writers and directors. You have very few chances to make something work. So the reason why people make bad choices of film and television is they only get a few choices. So a lot of times people just take the money, even if you say this will be very hard to fix but it's understandable. So you try to give them the best advice possible. If you were giving advice to any, now let's speak outside of just this industry, a ton of industries that you have to start at the bottom. And there's a ton of industries where you get paid nothing and work like a dog. And eventually if you stick with it, you likely will come out the other side. I think often the reason why people don't succeed is they just quit. They end up giving in and it's not that they couldn't have made it or that it was hard. They just gave up before they gave themselves a real shot. And some people might have take long, taken longer than you, and some people it would take shorter, and some people about the same. But what advice would you give to somebody who is hustling and grinding, trying to create something, and they're at the bottom, and it, it's hard, and they're wearing down? What would you say? Well, I mean, typically, this is not 100%. Life isn't easy, no matter what your setup is. So if you really believe something, you got to fight for it. And, that sounds really corny, but if you're not passionate about something, it's typically not going to work out. And usually with passion comes hard work. So later it can be rewarding. Well, what I, what I love about it is, is actually you tied it to passion. 
because I, what, you, what I heard you just say is if you're passionate, keep going. And if you're not passionate, it might actually be time to find something that you're passionate about that you could go through the, the hard times and you have something that gets well, you in the morning. Yeah. I mean, and the reason is life is a give and take, you know, you, you only have so much time. The only time you know you have is in the moment. Where did you end up before you transitioned into comics? Where was the last place you were in film and TV? Yeah. Um, so after the talent agency route, kind of did what you needed to do, which was I never wanted to be an agent. I was told it was a good way to have an overview of the whole entertainment field, which it was because of my notes and working in the story department at the end. I was found very by a very high-end producer who did exactly what I wanted to do, make high-end indie films. I wanted to be important and make films that were important, which I think is important to this point. Uh, it's it, it still important today, but it, my desires and wants have changed as well as what, you know, I think entertainment is. I was a little snobby in the beginning and entertainment was sold in a different way at that time. But I went to work for this high powered female producer. She ended up producing a movie crash, which she won the Oscar then had a great movie, the illusionist. And then like in the entertain in, in the entertainment business, which happens frequently, uh, her and her partner, and I guess I was part of it, got ripped off by a high-powered financier. And we all had to start again. But she then became a president of a company owned by Peter Goover called Mandalay Pictures. And I became an executive there. And I learned a lot about big studio movies. And I learned a lot about how people interact in business and what you want to do. And from there... I realized I had relationships and taste that I could raise financing for my own movies. And I started to do that on one-offs. And at one point I started reading scripts for very wealthy people in say Palo Alto and so forth and telling them which projects to invest in as I had the relationships for them to invest. And then I then on the side as well started making some HBO Cinemax shows for late night that were fun to do, but they were more meat uh, to make ends meet, meaning they paid really well, but they weren't the genre or the quality of work I wanted to do. But like I said, sometimes you have to take jobs to keep doing your, what you're passionate about. Nice. And then everything shifted. What did you say in 2013, everything in your life shifted? Um, well, I would say, uh, actually, way, way earlier than that. In 2008, 2007, 2008, two things happened. Um, there was the economic crisis, which had to do a lot with, with what the big short's about, mortgages being shorted and so forth, which changed the landscape of everything. And simultaneously, that, that queued up in the, the film and television world, the uh, WGA, the Writers Guild of America, the writers had to renegotiate their contracts and they went on strike. So all in TV and film paused for a moment. And immediately what happened after they renegotiated, well, it was going to be, we all knew it would be worked out at some point. Two things happened. It, it fucked up some, sorry, am I allowed to curse? Um, <laughs> you are it's fine <laughs> that's great uh, it screwed up it screwed up current TV shows TV shows that were current at the time that were on the air 
because instead of having typically the 22, if you were on a network, 22 episodes, there could have been 12 or 11, depending when the strike happened. And that may have screwed up the shows in the long run or in the short term. And then for films, it changed. The studios kind of got put in a weird position of development. So I'm, I'm sure a lot of films that were going to be made weren't. And then the studios got scared because because of the financial crisis. These gigantic corporations are invested in more than just entertainment, and they lost a ton of money. And so the studios, the major studios, were worried to invest in as many films as they did previously. So that is, I would say, 2008 is where TV got to push ahead of... Uh, or start to make ground against film. As there were less, from then on, there has been less chance for films to be made. At one point, I think there were two, around, don't quote, these these numbers aren't 100%, but it was somewhere between 220 and 250 films a year were being made by major studios or mini majors. And then it got up to like 70 or 80, maybe almost 100 after the fact. And it's become less and less. And so because there's less jobs to make film and television or make film, I mean, specifically, meaning there's less jobs for writers, less jobs for directors, actors. It made the TV landscape more attractive. And then technology caught up and it allowed for more content to be distributed more widely at the same time of higher quality. So, and those fantastic film writers and directors and actors who were only in the in the film they didn't have as much work and so they went to tv and it's changed the whole landscape entirely and film really hasn't recovered the only film that you continuously see are two things i think or three things you see the big popcorn movies which i mean anything from a big marvel movie or jurassic park you see known ip meaning known ideas, intellectual property that people know all over the world already as a preconceived notion. And then you see, oh, there's four. And then you see the genre slash psychological thriller that's in a budget range. And then you see the Oscar picks, which may or may not make money, but are well-done dramas that you could see on your couch, but people are willing to see in the theater. But what happened for you? Like, there's a, you know, I, I mean, I can say it, but I actually would love to, like, your story. Like, things changed for you. I mean, I remember coming, I was living in New York. Yes, yes. In, in, in 2013, I was an independent producer. And I was on my own. I had just finished a TV show in Romania, meaning we shot in Romania. It's not based in Romania. And I unfortunately came home, had been ill on set, but continued working. I just thought I had the flu. When I got home, all I got home in July of 2013, and I was kind of tired and sick. And I thought that was from working like 20 hours a day, so I just figured I was run down. And then in September of 2013, my girlfriend at the time, newly new girlfriend, of moving in, we just became, I guess, what you would the kids would call exclusive. She was going to shoot a casino ad in, I believe, uh, Michigan. 
and she was actually scared to leave me because I was so sick and had such a bad cough. She's European, actually Italian, and you know she wanted me to go to the hospital because because the way it works over there, uh, that's where you'd go if you just had a flu. And I just thought I had a bad flu or even walking pneumonia. And so I pro- I had made an appointment with my general practitioner. This was a Friday, and she was leaving. And I had an appointment for Monday because, you know, look, I was sick. I don't get sick that often. I was really sick, and I wasn't that scared. And so she made me break down and go to my parents while she went to work because she wanted me to be with somebody, which was very lovely and sweet, and I thought it was overprotective. Turns out on Monday, when I went to the general practitioner, I had some blood work, I had some x-rays done, and I got a call that day from my doctor that she had checked me into uh, hospital in Santa Monica, St. John's, and it turned out I had cancer and needed immediate surgery, and as soon as I recovered from surgery, I needed immediate chemotherapy. So it was a gigantic, life-changing experience. And you said, what you told me before, what you had stage four? Yes, it, tur- it turned out I had stage four cancer, um, which was very scary. But they, though obviously stage four, you don't, I didn't catch it on time. It was a type of cancer that was treatable, but I was very sick. I was very weak. You know, I obviously, I did probably have pneumonia. They don't know. But I had surgery to remove the tumor, and then I was supposed to do chemo immediately, but I had to recover. And the problem, I had a great general practitioner, and she saved my life. And then actually, I had a great, when I went to the emergency room, even though I was checking for hospital, the doctor was able to diagnose the type of cancer very quickly. It was very lucky the way he was, because he was right. Without having done much tests, he kind of knew. And so they were on the right path. So once I had the surgery, I was assigned about nine doctors, and I only knew one of them because it was emergency. I was stage four, and it had to happen really quick. And so once I had the surgery, I was supposed to start chemo, but then I was so sick, and I was on so much medicine really quickly. I was supposed to recover in you know a few days to start the chemo, but it started to become harder and harder for me to breathe. Um, and I actually... This went on for a much longer, but I was sick for multiple years. But so after the surgery, I would say the closest I felt I was going to die was that moment, even though I I later was sick longer because I couldn't breathe. And it got to a point that, uh, you know, I had my main oncologist come in, though I had, like I said, nine doctors all together. And I said, look, I don't know what's going on. I know I need to start this chemo ASAP. But I can't breathe. It feels like I have a weight on my chest. It's been two days and it's getting worse. You know, if 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 we don't figure this out, it doesn't matter if I start chemo or not. Turned out, even though uh, my my girlfriend Roberta, who was you know had come back from Michigan, obviously immediately she got to finish the job. But uh, and my mother were paying attention to everything. It was obviously new to the two of them. They were proxies, but of the nine doctors, a doctor took me off steroids, and it was the reason why my lungs were uh, healing. And so, luckily, when I told the oncologist how bad it was, they obviously believed me. He decided 
even though he was in a heart doctor, he wasn't, he was going to take care of everything and see if it changed my condition. And it turned out he realized they took me off steroids immediately when I started steroids, which in, within 16 hours, I felt a hundred percent better. And within a day and a half, I was ready for chemo, but that was very serious. I thought I was going to die from that. I had never felt like that before. So that was the first day. And then well, what was it from there? I, yeah. I mean, what was the, um, what's that experience? Like, what is it actually like? It's nobody. I don't think anybody would ever wish to be like faced with their mortality, but like to be, well, we were like what? 30 years yeah, old. Going. We were about 30 years old. Right. Yeah. yeah I was, uh, I was, 31 let me see four years i was 31 almost 32 okay and and you literally just uh, said, like i thought I, it was the closest i like i thought it was going to die what was like in your in well your- i mean in a weird way it was really bad that i was stage four meaning i had no idea i was sick like i was still working out five days a week even when i thought i had pneumonia like uh you know i don't know i i felt horrible but I didn't think I had cancer is what I would say, which says, you know, to everybody, if you feel bad, go to the doctor. Obviously I get it. The doctor's expensive, but that would be the only advice I could give. When you don't feel really right, go to the doctor immediately. But what happened was, so when Roberto left me on Friday, that's my fiance, my girlfriend at the time, left me on Friday and left me with my parents, which was smart. And I went to the general practitioner on Monday and then got checked into the hospital on Monday evening. From that point, on Monday evening, when I was told I definitely had cancer, and they, they didn't know I had stage four until they removed the tumor, which they knew that night or the, the, the next morning, meaning Tuesday. I, it was so fast, you didn't really have time to think about it. It was just, how do you live? And the most time I had to think about it was the next two days when I was so sick, I couldn't breathe. And to me, it was just like, if you were like attacked and you had to just resort to getting to survive, that's how I was. That was my whole conversation, though it made some sense where I was like, though I have cancer, we need to start chemo immediately. If I can't breathe the cancer, I'll die before the cancer kills me. You know, I didn't really have time to think about it, to be honest. I just had time if I wanted to live and I would do to a degree what they recommended, is how I'd put it. Well, and then you. So went. it was just to survive. It was just really to survive, to be honest. Yeah. But so then, I, I mean, think I think in some ways that was beneficial. You know, in some ways you don't really think of all the consequences and so forth. I didn't really care about who was my surgeon. I didn't care any of that stuff. If you had time, it's good to go get some opinions from different yeah. different doctors and so forth. These doctors did great, by the way. Besides taking off steroids too early. Well, but you know, it's just—it's just—it's uh, crazy. You know, that's why you got to have people with you. Everybody, you got to have proxies. It's really important. What you, you're too fucked up on medicine, you can't keep track of everything. You were, but and then you were. I mean, look, you were sick. The cancer came back at one point, and you said like you were sick for like. A well, few- well, I could. Yeah, I mean, I have a. I have, a, I have an amazing story and a crappy story. So immediately, you know, once I recovered from the steroid situation, I had to start chemo. Now, I knew at that point because they had biopsied the tumor. I was at stage four. It was very serious. So I was very lucky that 
uh, my oncologist in LA did a very undoctor thing. The type of cancer I had, he knew a specialist who was out of state, who really was a specialist, and you know, be it he wanted to work with another specialist, and this was a special. Ca- I was a bad case, a weird case, but he thought this guy could help me. He was willing to share me. Essentially, usually doctors want to take all the credit for things. He was like, this person's better at it. I would love to be part of it. And so, though I didn't have to go see the doctor at the point, the doctor told them what type of chemo and how much and so forth. And I had to do a radical amount of chemo. I had to do uh, four different sessions a week at a time of 24 hours of chemo. So I was in the hospital for over a month getting chemo 24 hours a day. Was there, was there any ever a point during all this that you like, I don't know, that you thought there you might not survive the, the whole process, procedure, question? Uh, um, you know, look, obviously I was 31, 32. I was very sick. I think the, the not breathing thing scared me more to a certain degree than the cancer. And I had been really convinced by the specialist that if done correctly, even how late the stage cancer it was, he thought I had a good chance. He was reassuring me and, you know, me not being a doctor and not knowing anything, I chose to believe in these doctors. So I was very scared. I knew my life would change, but I just wanted to get through the chemo and, and hopefully not and be in remission is what I would say. So it was very, it's very compartmentalized is how I put it at that point. What was the biggest thing that changed about the way you think about life because of that that whole situation? Um, I think I've always been somewhat of an outgoing person. I think I'm pretty similar with that. I, I'll say this: you know, you're always told these things. Your life, your life is about moments. I always agreed with that then, or before I was sick. And it was only reemphasized now, but, you know, kind of what I was saying before in terms of passion, uh, you only have the now. You feel good today. Go do what you feel like you need to go do. Um, I think you definitely need to plan ahead. But when you've had such a serious medical situation, to a certain degree, I want to believe I'll be okay. But now that this happened, I... I definitely know life is fragile, so it's more about I want to be comfortable today than in the long run, and I want to be as happy as possible, and I want to make life as simple as possible, because who knows what, I'm not a religious person, so I don't know what happens next, so let's let's hold on to something you know is real. I love, I love that you just said, I'm not a religious person, so I don't know what happens next. As if religious people ha- know exactly what's going to happen next. That was, well, no, they think they that. do. Well, no, I of mean, well, I mean, you're going to put blind. By the way, religion is great. It can give you a loss, loss you know, for some people. Yeah. It gets you through horrible times. I'm not knocking religion. For me, no, no, I'm making it's not some something I definitely believe. That, no, no, no. I know you're yeah. making it. <laughs> just for me, you know, after all these experiences, it's not that I believe in religion more or less. I just know why wouldn't I bask in what we kn- I know we have is how I put it. Yeah. So yeah. take advantage of what we all know we have because, you know, it could just be when you die, the lights are off. That's it. 
it's done. You never think again, you know. That's pretty depressing, by the way, but it's, well, it's I, a real possibility, in my opinion. Well, what I love <laughs> is just the idea of being present in the sense that, like, no one actually knows, and it doesn't actually matter. Yeah. Because we don't know, we can have faith and we can believe, and it's still great to be present now because this is all there is. And that's what I got. Well, it's all we know there is. Yeah. You know, that's what I would say. You know, that I'll tell you this for sure. That's all I know there is. Mm-hmm. You know, other people can have beliefs and beliefs are very strong and you can be passionate. That's great. But my opinion is I know we have what we have now and what our quality of life is. And you should enjoy it as much as possible. During this process, you know, you weren't this aftershock wasn't a thing prior before this, right? Like this is something that got your your aftershock the comic book company got developed through this process or after this process? How did that come about? Yeah, um I would say this this I okay. How comics came into my world, first of all, was though I'm all about reading history and writing at at my in my youth. I guess when I was four, whenever you're supposed to start reading, I don't know what that is, like three or four or five, whatever. I didn't love to read. And my godfather from New York owned three or two or three uh, baseball comic book stores in the city. And obviously my mother was worried that I didn't have a passion for reading. And so he turned me on to comics. And the first thing I ever read actually was Spider-Man. So I always loved comics, but I definitely film was my passion while i was at my uh, last job before i became an entrepreneur and independent producer at mandalay i started realizing that people really hadn't optioned or looked into many independent comics nor dc or marvel at that point which this is like 2007 spider-man was about the biggest movie i believe ever in terms of a comic based on a comic book from sony I don't think Marvel had, or Disney had made the deal with Marvel. So it was still kind of free range. You could go get Marvel and DC titles if you were a big enough producer and so forth. And, you know, I was like, these are great stories. Obviously, Watchmen was being made at the time. And that wasn't the typical superhero book. So I was very early on optioning and meeting uh, comic writers. And at the same time, I met independent publishers who either worked for image or worked for their own publishing companies. And I met this guy named Joe Pruitt, who was an independent publisher and, and comic writer. He wrote for Marvel, like for cable and X-Men and so forth. And then he became an editor publisher, which basically is the producer of the comics and also could write comics. And he ran a company that went through image. He ran a company that went through a company called IDW. And we started coming up with a, um, a model to partner because I believe everything starts with story and creative and art to partner with the creators with both writers and artists and form a company and I think we were going to call Savage Planet and by the way the model that we were doing all creator creator partnerships to an nth degree meaning they're in the business would never have worked but I raised the money two different times. Uh, you know, people had started to see that these Marvel movies were working and people to this day, and they're starting to learn more. When you say comics, most people think of capes and costumes. 
but comics are just a medium for reading. It could be a genre piece, but they're more grounded typically at this point. Really, Marvel and DC are the only books that are all have capes and costumes. But so I raised the money two different times with Joe for this model we had created, start a comic company, Savage Planet. And they both fell apart uh, when the they were real estate magnets, very wealthy real estate people who wanted to get in film and television. This is the way I convinced them to get into it. Uh, they fell apart because they agreed to be partners with the creators. And then we'd get the final paperwork to sign after we had negotiated already. This wasn't the first time. And they would try to take away the ownership, the majority of the ownership from the creators, which is the big problem the entertainment business has with the old time comic creators like Stanley and Kirby. And uh, I'm forgetting his name right now, but the people who created Batman, they basically were writers for hire and never owned any of the characters they created. So even though those contracts were legit, if somebody's made $10 billion in your idea, you should probably give them, or if they're alive, or their family some money. So for us, it was about being partners with the creators, and these wealthy people wanted to rip them off again, so we couldn't move forward. So after the second one fell apart, I took a break from doing it. And then when I got sick, I had been doing, as I said, reading high-end scripts for basically the Silicon Valley rich people and they wanted to be in the entertainment business and look fancy and invest money. And before I'd gotten sick, somebody had told me they're going to raise a eight figure fund for development for film and television. They wanted me to head that up and I could have taken their money, I guess, to a degree. And what that means development in, in film is the riskiest business it means you're developing the idea then you have to sell the idea finance or or finance yourself but sell it to a studio and get it made so basically you would option let's say a book and then you would hire a writer so you put up all this money in development and you have a chance of never recouping it so typically when you do development three to five percent of whatever you develop gets made so it's the highest risk but could have the largest gains, meaning if it works, you can make a tremendous amount of money because you're part of the owner. It's the closest thing to being a studio. So they told me, oh, we have this eight, nine figure raise to do UV headed development. I said, okay, that's great. I'll spend all your money and three to 5% will ever get made. I think it's a bad investment. Why don't we start a publishing company where we can create a library? Hopefully, we make some money or at least break even on the publishing of the comics. And then we sell all the ancillary rights and we can be the producers of the film and television and obviously it's video game, digital, so forth. We're better off doing that and it'll cost way less money than the amount of money you need to develop tens if hundreds of projects in order to get something made. And while I was sick, it started to come together, which was shocking. It was just a thought. <laughs> What's the what makes Aftershock different than other comic book companies? Well, two things. I mean, multiple things. The cliche answer is myself and my partners. We choose ideas based on story alone. So it can come from anywhere. It can be about anything. And that's the cliche answer. The other thing is 
of all the other companies that are independent publishers, we're the highest quality for both comics and then for film and television. Our publisher, Joe Pruitt, who I told you was the one that I, we tried to create a comic book company two other times together, is a writer, but publisher and editor in comics for years. And he had relationships with, be it Neil Gaiman, Alan Moore, Garth Ennis, so forth. So immediately we had those relationships. And in turn, our other partner, Mike Moritz, who's the editor-in-chief of Aftershock and my partner as well, was a very well-known editor in comics, meaning like the producer of the comics. He worked for DC. At DC, he oversaw every Batman title, so every Batman book. He did it for nine years. He was so good that Warner Brothers asked him to move to Los Angeles when they moved the, the business over there. He declined them overseeing their biggest book. And Marvel signed him to a six-year deal to oversee all the X-Men titles as well as Guardians of the Galaxy. A year and a half into that six-year deal, we were able to raise the money for Aftershock and get him to come over and start his own business. So Joe may have known the older writers and older artists. Mike was completely relevant and knew the biggest current writers and current artists so off the bat we were an independent company that had the ability to get an a plus star say like will smith or tom cruise if you're thinking of film Mm -hmm. to all the up-and-coming writers and i was able to bring in projects that i knew worked for both film and television and not talk about it and be story first so we became what was seen as a very high-end publishing group Vertigo in the 90s, which is where Preacher came from and so forth, we became seen as a higher-end group immediately as soon as we launched. And so, and then on the back end, and this is happening now, (laughs) we don't publicize. In the comic world, if you publicize that you have ambitions for film and television and other things, it's a mistake because people then don't take your book seriously. Like I said, we concentrate story first, comics first. If, if the story can't work in comics, we're not going to buy it. But we need the comic to be, be as good as possible. It needs to work there. And then if it can work um, non not artificially and be transferred to a different medium like film or television or a video game, it does. And we let it happen naturally. Everything is based on story and we worry about the comic and go from there. So we only publicize film and television when a project has been bought at a network or studio meaning it's as close to being made as possible. Got it. What's like one of the, do you have a favorite of all your comic books or maybe not a favorite, but one that you just find like maybe the most interesting and unique? One book that I love, which is a huge world, is a book by a woman named Marguerite Bennett, a book called Animosity. And the idea of animosity is one day everybody on earth woke up and every animal became sentient. And not only they have human level intelligence and can speak, but they could remember what happened to them before they could. And so obviously the world is turned upside down. So it's a little bit of like The Walking Dead meets Why the Last Man. And the first story we tell, we have multiple books on this, and we're, we sold it to a studio to be a film. The first book is about a nine-year-old girl, Jessie, and her hound, Sander. And they're in New York City when the wake happens. That's when the animals become sentient. And uh, and after her parents are unfortunately killed, 
standard knows at four years old, hounds only lived seven to eight years, that he needs to get her from New York to San Francisco as she has a half brother who could be alive, has no idea if he's alive, who happens to be a vet because he won't be around to protect her. So he went from being the puppy that she took care of to the father figure. And so it's a road movie that transverses not only uh, the U.S., but also every animal creature is a different different species from one another. You know, it's a different world. So if you think racism and and social inequality is bad now, imagine if you have hundreds of species, if not actually tens of thousands of species that are competing to be on top of the food chain in very little order. Wow. That's super interesting. And I can only imagine the depth at which somebody like her had to write that. Like the, the amount of things you could cover is like wide open. It is. You said it was a huge world. To oh, oh no, no, a hundred percent. No, and it's it's. And by the way, like both the nine-year-old characters, an R-rated book. Um, yeah. You know, the opening scenes of the wake when the animals are sent in it. You know, a cat is in bed with. Uh, I, you would assume a boyfriend, girlfriend, or husband and wife, and immediately the cat who's become sentient goes to the boyfriend or husband and says, if you ever hit her again, I'll scratch out your eyes. Then there's some pandas that are being held in China by some armed guards, because it's a zoo of some sort or panda thing. They take the guns and immediately kill themselves because pandas are known to not want to breed with one another. So there's really no reason to live. So it's it's all over the place, but there are some animals who want to live and who want to get revenge, and some who want to be with humans. Two, I got two last uh, questions for you. What's what's the biggest challenge in what you're working on now, and like where do you like where do you want it to go, and what's the biggest challenge of getting there? That's the first one. Yeah, I mean the biggest challenge is forget that the publishing business to a certain degree is a dying business. Obviously, digital will help that. With publishing comics, it's different because it's an art form. So you not only have the writing, but you have these amazing art artists. And to be honest, every issue, every panel is is like a painting. It's just unbelievable. It's really, really, when you think about it, it's really special, but it's discarded because there's so many Marvel and DC books, but it really is quite a skill. Um so you're, you're fighting against the time of people don't buy magazines as much, but then again, they want to read these stories. So with comics, there's a problem because it's a, it's definitely a medium that is stuck in 1980s and needs to move up the stores, the fans, everybody. At the same time, what would you rather own if you're going to buy a comic, a digital version that's just on your computer, your phone, or your iPad, or the hard copy? And so it's something that digital right now makes up for Marvel and DC um, about four and it's the highest 10% of ownership. People are still buying books, but you know, there's a whole issue with it. So there's a weird issue. It'll work out or in my opinion, I think digital will obviously grow, but people will always want to hold books as it's art. So that's a little weird about comics. And uh, the other thing is we're, we literally are a startup company. We're in year 
we're almost in year four of five as typically how startup companies work. And so though we've been in business for a little over three years, as I said, we've only been publishing two years and three months. And you have to make a place in the marketplace. Right now, we're known as very high-end books. We've had some hits. And there's a... There are two awards for publishers, one for big publisher, which Marvel and DC are big publishers, and one for small publishers, which are publishers who have 5% or less of the entire world's um, uh, buyership. And DC won this year for Big Publisher of the Year, and Aftershock, my company, won this year only after its second year of publishing. So that's very great, but that doesn't equate money. We have to get more well-known. And simultaneously, I'm selling the film and television rights and developing those projects. And it's going very well and happening quickly. But film and television, though I'm saying it's happening quickly, doesn't equate to really anything for at least three to six years, I would say. So, you know, the business is growing. Yeah. Congratulations on that, that award. That's really, I mean, we talked about that a few weeks ago when you told me and, and that's awesome. And a, obviously a huge accomplishment because you're not the only small company. I mean, there's a lot of people out there. So, and to do something that great oh, yeah. here is, is very unique and special. It's pretty. No, it's really fulfilling. I just wish sales were more. <laughs> no, I don't know, but it's, of very, course. it's kind of, well, it's kind of shocking. And, 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 you know, the funniest thing is, there aren't that many companies, but altogether there's probably 25 publishers, and it's kind of amazing. People recognize our taste very quickly, is what I would say, and our quality. So that, that's fulfilling. At the same time, if I'm talking to a studio or a network, they have no idea what the fuck I'm talking about. They don't care. They well, will though at some point, but right now they don't. Thanks for doing this. Thanks for being on here. Thanks for sharing. The, the rough starts that it takes to break into the entertainment industry. Thanks for being super honest. You know, something that I've always known about you and that you still are today is you just, you just kind of say what you think and you don't try to make it pretty or necessarily nice. You just actually give your opinion. And in some ways that's hard for people to hear and swallow. And in some ways it's also really refreshing because people actually get the real story without it just looking like, you know, some, some really contrived or painted picture. Thanks for, um, sharing, I appreciate that. Yeah. This, the story of cancer and, and the survival and, you know, I, as a friend, I'm super grateful you're here. Um, and just as a, as a human being to see like, Hey, you actually did the things you said, you actually had a moment and then you actually went after your passion. You know, you've been the, you've been one of the people I know who have, You've been into comics since you were a little kid. So you're actually doing the thing that you did that you loved when you were little, which is even cooler. And thanks for doing it well. Like you're doing it the way you want to do it and the, what you're passionate and committed to. So thanks for sharing all that here and, um, and spending some time with me on a pleasure, Alex. And congratulations on all your success and your life moves. It's fantastic. And it's uh, inspiring. Thanks, man. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Dream Mason Podcast. Please subscribe to the Dream Mason Podcast so you don't miss an episode. Share it with a friend and give us a review on iTunes. I am grateful to have had you here. If you want more, you can follow or reach out to me, Alex Terranova, on Instagram at inspirationalalex or at thedreammason.com 
or email me at alex at thedreammason.com. And remember, you are a Dream Mason because your dreams don't build themselves. Just can't stand by